Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to Bees Tactical Podcast, where we try to get under the bonnet of all things tactical and statistical at Brentford. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by my co-host David Anderson as Bees Tactical's left and right wingbacks, monumentally arriving to make everything about a 21-game unbeaten run disappear from memory in a few 90 minutes. David, how are you doing? <laughs> Hi, John. Really good. Yeah, uh, sort of fitting intro for the last uh, the last <laughs> month or so. But yeah, yeah, I'm really good. Looking forward to our little chat. Yeah, and it's a really interesting one this month. It, you know, in the previous episodes that we've done, we've we've almost been in danger of just talking about Brentford being great and winning everything. Um, but February very much wasn't that month for for Brentford. We've we sort of see a, a quite a big up and down for for Brentford. So three wins in a row at the beginning of the the month, three losses in a row in the middle of the month, and then two wins at the end of the month. A crazy packed schedule for uh, the shortest month of the year as well, it must be said. So um, do you want to talk about the overall monthly narratives to start off with? Do you want to just give us a brief sense of like the overall picture of what happened in February? Yeah, let's do it. So as a month, I guess, as you said, yeah, just another crazy packed month. Um, Eight games in February, which seems really unholy in itself. Um, week to week, yeah, the the sort of Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday schedule. Um, it started off okay. I think there was a couple of um, rearranged fixtures chucked in, and Brentford probably rode their luck in a couple of games where the opposition, specifically Middlesbrough and um, maybe Reading, a little bit as well. These games were a lot tighter than the final score showed, and. Um, not so much papered over the cracks, but I think there was there was a lot of pressure from the other teams, and to come out of those games with such big wins probably masks a little bit of the story. But but yeah, so a difficult start, and then uh, sorry, a good start, and then it did get difficult. There was a couple of games where it looks like, and it has to be accepted now, that teams are watching and learning really, really quickly, and we're we're three quarters of the way through, not much left of this season. Sorry, just over two thirds, and there. Teams are really starting to be aware of what works, what doesn't work. It's the second time you're playing um, opponents, so you can you can learn from what worked last time and what didn't work. And there is a bit of a theme arising uh, in terms of not just how you stop Brentford, but a way to actually beat them as well. Um, we'll probably talk about this a little bit today, the, the wing-backs. And we saw it in three systems and three defeats, um, the Coventry, Barnsley and uh, Queen's Park Rangers defeats all in a row, all using these win-back systems. And it 
Um, it probably rattled the fan base a lot more than it should have done. But this idea of losing after you've been 21 games unbeaten and then you lose three in a row, the, the, the brain can't really think about how you ever win a game again when 21 games going, uh, going at 21 unbeaten probably does show that this is a good team and, uh, and bad things aren't going to be around for too long. So, yeah, it's hard to keep your head, but the, the month finished a lot better than um, uh, that middle section. Mm. Well, let's talk about the wing back situation then because I think this is the this is the, the fascinating aspect of, of the month do you think that that wing back system uh, phenomenon in the middle of the month was the result of, of tactical uh, work that was being done by opposition coaches and, and analytic staff uh, or do you think that there is a tendency for teams in the championship to play with wing back systems and obviously a few of them now have caused uh, Brentford trouble and so you're going to see more and more of that happening in the future mm, yeah I think there's I think there's a few playing it now I think um, we had probably the 4-2-3-1 obsession last year and um, maybe the year before but I think we're evolving now into seeing a lot more coaches and managers wanting three centre-backs like proper centre-backs not just um, not just maybe someone filling in at the back and playing there but three larger traditional centre-backs playing and then having two players that facilitate progression out on the wings just going up and down and these are these these can be defensive minded players playing out there or they can be attack minded players moving up and down so that base of three and then two beside and those two contributing to defense and attack is is the route we're seeing um a number of a number of coaches head down and i think yeah it's both things so i think that works really well against brentford and possession based teams so it controls it does a bit more for your control in those matches when you're coming up against teams who are better on the ball for you but also at the same time, it's um, it's a solid formation and it's it's hard to break. And when these games are really tight, if you can give away less goals than the opposition and nick one, you're um, you're right in there. So yeah, a bit of both things I think going on there. Um, I think what we what we're sort of seeing though is I think there's different ways to play it, and that's that's what's been quite interesting about um, Brentford's opponents this month. On top of that. Obviously, the phenomenon that Leeds United experienced in their two seasons under Bielsa in the Championship was that when you get to a point where teams are expecting to lose to you, you just see opposition sitting deeper and deeper and deeper. Do you think there's been any element of that in it as well? It's not just a, a sort of structural, a lateral structural phenomenon. This It's as much about the vertical compression that, that teams are just coming out against you, sitting deep, and it just makes life a lot harder for you to beat teams like that. Mm, there, yeah, there's a little bit of that I think more situational throughout games I think um, the difference with Brentford to Leeds though is I think teams are they're not as they're, they're scared of Brentford but I, I think they're not as fearful in the danger of Leeds that Leeds pose so with Brentford I think there's a lot more of um, this wing back system using to disrupt us in the build up phase so where we're seeing three forwards and two wing backs beside them push us up and box us in when we're trying to build up I think that's where teams are looking to exploit us. I think with Leeds, I think there is an acceptance that you you basically, if you can, you can try as much as you want, but you actually might not get the ball off these guys. So there is a bit more of a retreating around the goal. We don't see that as much with Brentford. I think it's much more disrupting us and just getting in our rhythm as we play through the thirds. And because we are so patient and we don't quite have the, I guess, maybe the verticality of Leeds, how quickly Leeds can get the ball forwards through the wings. And if there is a problem, I think you're better at moving the ball from back to front. But Brentford have very specific ways of doing it. And I think there can be a little bit of ultra patience. I mean, not as patient as we used to be, but it can be 
possible to to sort of disrupt and force mistakes maybe maybe a little bit too many mistakes than uh, than we like i think do you think the wide areas are important for your transit i mean i i should I know this better than i do but would you say that you build up more through the wings or through the central spaces because it seems as though you have your better players in the middle of the park for me mm. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's more De Silva moving out just into that like half space, a uh, half space channel up and down the field. So there is um, there is ball progression down the wings. Yes, yeah. But it's it's not quite as wide as um, uh, as we like. I think on the left hand side with Henry, um, and this is one of the someone's made this um, assessment earlier that Henry and Canos down their wing provide real genuine width. They make us feel like a wide team. I think on the right, it's a little bit more. De Silva moving out there and it, him mm. being finding himself in that situation and then him coming inside and just being a, a focal point for the width instead of actually progressing up that right hand side. Um, mm. As as Henry's injured, we'll see. We are, we are seeing a little bit of a change in that, but no, I think we're much more progressive through the centre of the team as overall. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I think Leeds fans for a while were quite fearful of playing against three four threes as well, but I think that's mainly because the pressing structure mm. that a 3-4-3 offers is really good for pressing in wide spaces and Leeds obviously build up in the wide areas if you can break down Leeds's transition through the wide areas then they suddenly start looking very very um, toothless I think in, in going forward so uh, it sounds like it's a different issue that, that we're seeing um, with Brentford in that respect yeah different I think different overall in that we're being forced into mistakes probably in the middle but mm-hmm. um, that 3-4-3 three, three you're mentioning has caused us a few issues Barnsley did it really really well they um they used those front three to spread wide and prevent us getting the ball out wide to the fullbacks and then moving it forward then back inside they they did that quite well and um Coventry exploited it quite well as well they um uh, they used a little bit of their three wasn't so flat it was more the front two and then a, a, an attacking midfielder behind which was O'Hare who would come in and create that diamond at the front uh, sorry a triangle at the front and he would move left and right and connect with the front line and it, it disrupted us it we're yeah we, we struggled with it immensely and I think um, a couple of injuries and not being bang on it ourselves led to us probably giving the ball away and making more mistakes than we'd have liked but you just have to play through these things. You can't. Um, you can't dwell on them. Um, and it takes. It also as well. I think we have to just remember that there's a team we're playing. You can't just expect the opponent to just let you do what you do well in a match. You have to. Mm. You have to evolve, and you have to think of a way to come through it. And then you have to have different routes out of these um, these block situations. Mm. Yeah, and this is something that we were talking about before we came on air. The fact that football at least for me, is very much a problem-solving exercise for the coach, right? And um, what I find fascinating about something like this, where you see wing-backs being used because it clearly causes you problems, is that, you know, every manager is going to come across these systems where, you know, there's going to be someone who's going to be able to cause them problems and their job is to think their way through these these issues. So before we move on to look at some of the specific uh, games in February, maybe I'd be quite interested in your thoughts on the two wins that came at the end of the month. Do you think that Brentford were doing anything differently in those two games? Or do you think it was just a variance thing? Um, and and what what did you make of those those games? I think it's games against Sheffield Wednesday and Stoke as well, right? Yeah, so what's the, those two teams also played wing-backs. Exactly the, well, very sim, not quite exactly the same, but similar to um, Barnsley and Coventry. But um, I think... Um, we can probably just get bogged down and just like just brandishing this all as wing back systems, but they're all they're all played very differently. So it's all to do with the personnel. It's it's the type of player who's in the wing back in the positions of wing back. It's whether they decide to go with three central midfielders or two. Um, 
there's a lot of variations to it, but I think where Sheffield Wednesday went really well is the fact that they did use three central midfielders. So they had their wing-backs, but they used three central midfielders of Hutchinson and Barry Ballon. And I can't remember who the other one was for this game. But the point is that instead of being a direct team and moving the ball quickly like forward like Barnsley and boxing us in, they tried to play through the thirds and they had Barry Bannon maybe dropping deep, just being really slow on the ball. Um, at times you could see Bannon and Hutchinson within two metres of each other just exchanging basically worthless passes, going nowhere. And it, it allowed us to get back into our shape. So although they played a wing-back system and um, maybe had a couple of attacks, their, their interpretation of it isn't going to hurt Brentford because the speed at which they play and at which they move the ball forward, just um, also chipping the ball forward to a lone striker isn't, isn't really punishing enough. So we can, we can, we can control that. Um, and then in the end, we grind them down and came out 3-0 winners, which is probably a fair result, and they didn't really get any shots off. And then if we look at Stoke, so Stoke played it a little bit differently. They played a slightly different variation. They moved back to a wing-back system after playing um, a 4-2-3-1 for a really long time, actually. So it, it's you don't just change formations overnight. This must have been something that Michael O'Neill was thinking about and knowing what worked against Brentford previously. Um, his interpretation of uh, the wing-back system did push for players forward and it wasn't quite like um, Sheffield Wednesdays they actually did push high and they did get a number of players forward and they gave up a little bit of the middle they, they weren't so interested in um, building possessions up from maybe their own box or, or try they didn't have a player basically who was wanted to get on the ball in all situations what they did instead was actually try and confuse Brentford and actually get Powell forward to join him with the front line so it's different interpretations of it and I think the way that some teams play is more beneficial and, and harder for Brentford to play against which is probably most teams find this I think if you've got players snapping away at you during when you're trying to build up you're going to find that harder if there's more bodies there around you than mm. if you're going to just have one centre forward like uh, for instance Jordan Rose running around unable to really do anything against um, four, four people in the in the first line mm. Well let's just break down the month then in those three blocks uh, so the first block is those three wins uh, Bristol City 3-2-1 uh, 3-2 win at home uh, a Borough 4-1 win away and then a Reading 3-1 win away as well is there anything that you wanted to point out about those games in particular? Bristol was um, probably the start of these games where it felt like errors were leading to and we were giving other teams far too much of a leg up in games we, we came out on top in the end but I think there was um, that's when this feeling of actually hang on there might be something wrong with this team probably that's where it's probably stemmed from. But Brentford worked their way back into that game. So I don't think there was too much to worry about. And Bristol aren't a, aren't a strong side. So we a lot of these goals are coming from errors from our own areas and just crosses coming in. And we yeah we, we sort of got through that, which is good. Borough was a little bit more scary because I think Borough, us coming out as 4-1 winners against Borough seemed, was a ludicrous result from the balance of play, the, the type of chances that were created in that game. Um, I think um, just so many big, big chances in the centre of the field, um, centre of the box. And uh, yeah, sorry, George Savile it was. Um, Savile, I think, generated maybe sort of 1.5 XG himself. It was really, it was a really, really bizarre game that he didn't actually get on the score sheet. So it was weird in the sense of how have we come out 4-1 winners of this? And then is this actually reflecting what's going on on the pitch? And then we moved into Reading, which was another really tight game where they used a 4-2-3-1, pushed us high, blocked us in. We were struggling to build up. And I think we were seeing a little bit of um, the limitations of maybe Pinnock and Mads Beck-Sorensen, just two very left-footed players being pinned back. And 
and we were making errors. We've we've sort of given away a couple of penalties on our own box. Um, there's a few tackles that have gone in, and they've just been pushing us on the ball in in ways that teams previously weren't as um, weren't as confident in doing so. So we're we're seeing a little bit of a shift in how teams are approaching us. And um, but we came out three one winners. Um, Josh De Silva doing his his thing as well, scoring a couple of goals out of very little, and then making results look better than they are. So these games are very very tight, and then. It goes to Barnsley and we come up against a, a, a situation where we've got a team who went for the 3-4-3. They, they condensed the pitch really well. They blocked us in. When the ball went forward, it's not so much like making a big gap between the defence and the forward line. The, for, the defensive line are pushing up and really squeezing the pitch. So any knockdowns, um, you've got their central midfielders, Mowat and um, uh, who he was playing in the midfield against. They were just snapping around at our players. So you can't build any possessions at all. So in the end, they forced us into some mistakes. And I think something we probably should have been punished a little bit further in these previous games. But it it, it felt like all of these mistakes came in the block of Barnsley, QPR and Coventry. I'm interested in the fact that in all of those games, the opposition scored first. Um, in Bristol and Borough as well, I think those goals came very early on. Um, and the other thing that we should talk about in this regard is there's a lot of David Raya errors <laughs> on this on this list in this yeah. month. So that's probably something you should talk about as well. But I'm, so let's break those into three questions. One of them is um, why were you? Why do you think that you were letting teams con- uh, score against you first? Do you think you have an issue with scoring very early on? Is there a concentration issue? And and then I guess the third one is Raya. What's what's going on with Raya this this mm. season? Well, yeah, it could almost you could almost answer that in one go. But I think the start of games now. So, if if we think about Brentford in the first second parts of this season, um, teams were getting their defensive line and their blocking line wrong against Brentford. They were just sort of sitting off them in the mid. In the um, basically, their pressing line was too deep. It wasn't. It wasn't affecting Brentford in the build-up so we were able to just start off with Pinnock and um, Mads and move forward into midfield De Silva pick up the ball and then we just get the ball into the front line far too easily so I think teams have started to watch this and think hang on and this it will be the analysts as well just advising the coaches saying well let's not let them make 60 passes in that area let's reduce that down or let's make them make those passes under a lot more pressure Rea doesn't like to go long as often he likes to go short into the left back or the centre back or the DM how can we how can we stop that and is there any is there anything to exploit here and uh, and teams have done that and it's come off really well I think Raya has um, made a few awkward passes I think I think that's fair enough I think some of and what makes them feel worse is they've actually led directly to goals as well so he makes many like as a as a keeper he makes so many passes and I think it's really unfair to to look at him and say that he should be doing much better or because the volume of passes he makes for the the amount of goals we concede I think it's it's not there's not a big problem there I don't think but having the goals go in first and giving us a bit more of a, an uphill battle coming back into these games is generating the feeling of we're doing this the hard way or should we have been conceding that goal or could we do better and the fact that they're coming early as well but I, I think it's a it's an all round thing. I don't think it is attributed to Rare in his own. I think um, the defence has been pushed really, really hard in terms of playing as many games. There hasn't been much rotation until Reed's come in recently, um, and teams are just more confident against Brentford. When you when you go and play a pressing system, you're not you're not just saying actually let's just go out and play this system and then retreat back to our own goal. I think if you commit to this system and uh, 
and uh, force Brentford into making these passes and a couple of them are going to your own players and then you can quickly do a couple of passes before everyone can settle and the ball's going in the net there isn't really much you can do you don't you don't rip up your entire system you keep plugging away so it's really hard to pull out um, individuals for a couple of the mistakes they've made because it's got us so far already I think we just have to accept that on occasion other teams are going to get their own tactics right and um, and there might be some goals we concede from this. The other thing that we should probably talk about is Rico Henry's injury mm. um, and it would be tempting to say were these losses linked to Rico Henry's injury but of course <laughs> yeah. he didn't get injured until the last game um, in that losing streak against Coventry but yeah. And on that, we had a listener question from Declan Moody who asks, how much tactically will we have to adjust the team with Henry out? How have you viewed our response to that from the two games we've played since? What do you make of of, of Brentford without Rico Henry? Because Rico Henry is probably one of the most coveted left-backs in, in English football at the moment, uh, in many respects. So um, how how do you feel about the fact that he hasn't been available and how well have Brentford dealt with his loss? Yeah, he's a, he's a big blow. I think not having him is... It's going to be tough for any team. I, I think, um, as we mentioned in the earlier parts, he's a big way. He's a big part of how this ball gets forward for Brentford. It it's recycled along the back line and then comes out to him, and then he'll find Canos or, or if the ball's on the right hand side um, deep, he'll push up high and be available for a switch or supporting Canos when he gets the ball for an overlap or or an underlap. There's it's just he's just a big part in our not only defensive with his pace but in our attacking play as well. So. Losing him is um, an, a massive adjustment needs to happen to the team because we don't have another left back who's like for like. We have Madsbeck Sorensen, who is maybe three times the size of Henry, um, doesn't turn as quickly and is a lot bulkier a player playing there. So you have to adjust the entire team. So the the attacking wing turns over to the right-hand side and we put more pressure on um, an ageing Dalsgaard to get up and down the mm. wing and a lot more of the build-up and, and a bit more of the chaotic running from defence and that those later runs to support are coming from the right-hand side now. Mads Beck Sorensen in the left-back position is holding his position a little bit more to make that three at the back. So there are um, there are changes. I think um, the, form, the side of attack is one thing that's changing. Um, where we'd attack down the left, that's that's really happening down the right. And the problem with that as well is Mbomo's been so out of form. So if you're if you're more reliant on attacking down the side of a player that's really struggling in games that might limit you a little bit as well. But we've we've seen up and down bits from Mbemo and um, Dalsgaard's been working okay so far. I, I think um, the fan base are probably a bit more worried about how we get through this phase than we should have been because um, I, I think uh, a lot of the stuff that Henry did, we can get some of it and we can get a bit of it out of Dalsgaard. Dalsgaard's plays that role before. He's Dalsgaard's been the attacking right back before. He's not... Um, He's not done it recently because I think he has to be managed through the season and, and um, treated a little bit more carefully because of his age and maybe some little niggles he's carrying. But he can um, he can be an attacking force throughout games. So I, d- I don't think it's as much of a concern as we'd um, as we'd have previously thought. So you've talked about the Barnsley game. Let's talk through the other two losses in that block of losses. So Barnsley was a two 0 loss um, at home. QPR was a 2-1 loss away and then Coventry was a 2-0 loss away. Um, what were the takeaways from those other two games? Um, big disappointment, I think. I think QPR was um, a game where we took, uh, we did take the lead against QPR. Um, I think it, what was disappointing about QPR was how much the second half they improved and uh, just li- literally wrestled the game back from us. And um, 
it wasn't through particularly intricate play. I think it was just through us being a little bit naive and maybe sitting sitting on the lead and not um, um, not basically halting players who were making good advancements. I think there was a couple of opportunities for serious tactical fouls to go in where they were just let to run, and um, some of these moments led to led to dangerous moments and goals. And then the second half of QPR was a little bit of unfortunate play where um, crosses would come in and then they'd be defended in the first phase and then that ball would drop down to another player and it would bobble around and it was a little bit more, no one was clearing their lines and it was, and I guess this is also to do with pressure and tired and just um, exertion of the season but QPR got found their way back into the game far too easily and I think um, some of the goals we conceded were fairly unlucky and probably just little communica- miscommunications and poor errors of judgment and um, them coming back into the game. So it was disappointing in the fact that we felt like we had a lot of control and it was just pulled away from us. And th- those were wing-back systems as well. And this was a good use of wing-backs. They used them quite wide and as crossers, like deep crossers as well, not so much getting into cutback positions, but just switching play on um, Todd Kane's side over to the left wing or putting little chip balls in to to test um, Reed and Pinnock and those in the in the box heading-wise. Heading and um, it worked and they got their goals and they, they got the game back. But um, I, I don't think though, seeing any, I don't think across the 90 minutes that there was anything of too concern to, to think about there. The fact that we lost is um, disappointing. But carrying that kind of form into Coventry, Coventry was a little bit more of um, an aggressive system we came up against. Um, Tyler Walker was really effective on his own up front and um, BMO was good as well. And they they put our centre backs and they put them under heavy pressure and um, they were really clever in how when the ball went out to maybe Mads Beck Roeslev the other sorry Mads Roeslev the other right back coming in for Dalsgaard because we played a slightly weakened team this game because of injuries he was he was finding himself picking up the ball in the right back situation and within a couple of seconds he would have um, the left wing back and Walker closing in on him and just giving him no options there was no route because of um, how well O'Hare was marking. Janelt in the DM position. There was no there was no route for um, Roeslev to go back home safely because that was blocked off, and he was he ended up losing the ball. And then those situations actually turned into one of the. I think that led actually to the penalty being given away by Rico Henry. So we're just seeing teams really sort of look at Brentford and look at what their passing pattern from the back and thinking actually how can we disrupt this and how can we stop it from going forwards and. Um, yeah, we we found um, we found those two teams, or that, that th- those three batches of teams, um, that batch of three teams, sorry, really difficult to play against, and um, they just exploited a couple of our couple of our weaknesses. So that brings us to the two wins. You've already touched on the Sheffield Wednesday win, the three win, three nil win at home. Um, you did a preview with that game um, with Peter Lerman prior to the, the to the fixture. Is there anything you wanted to add on top of that about the? about the Wednesday game. Yeah, we we touched on it earlier, didn't we? Um I think Wednesday was just a really good team for Brentford to play at that moment because we'd lost three games in a row. Um Sheffield Wednesday have their own problems being at the bottom of the league. Um they had a caretaker manager. They've got uh, they've got yeah, they've got their own issues going on and I think it Although they are another team that play this wingback system, they play it very differently and they do have a player like Barry Bannon who Peter just described him to me as like he's allergic to not having the ball he just wants the ball in all phases so whenever the ball's deep coming from the centre-backs he wants to go and drop and get it if the ball's gone forward he'll try and get it and having that sort of player that um, 
when you watch him, you think, actually, if he just held his position and let some of the play move around him a little bit, could the ball move around quicker? And it, it just worked in our favour, really. We ground them down because they lost a little bit of their shape. Um, Bannon was ill-disciplined in his position and you could see him getting angrier and angrier throughout the game. And in the end, uh, we just proved too strong and exploited the fact that they, they just had Jordan Rose up front and then and then Bannon uh, not being disciplined enough with his positioning. But coming out of that with a 3-0 win felt felt quite good and a good timely turnaround of um, what, was a, what was a difficult period. And then that brings us to the final game of February, which was that 2-1 win um, at home against Stoke. Again, I've got a David Raya error um, on the on the notes, uh, but you did say that the second half improvements in this game. Yeah, big turnaround in the second half. So the first half, if, if this the error from Raya this time came in the first minute of the game. It was um, could have been just not far from the kickoff. Um, a cross comes in from Stoke, and um, there's nobody in the box. It's, there's no issues at all. Madsbeck Sorensen knocks it down to Raya and. It's just calm. There's nothing. There's no issues. Rare, um, Madsbeck moves away out to the left wing because he's playing left wing back just to try and get a bit of space. But just as he's on the edge of the box, Rea looks up and decides to play the ball to him. And um, I can't remember who was um, who cut out this pass. I think it might have been Brown. I'm not sure. I've, Brown may have been the one that finished it. But anyway, someone was there waiting, and Rea's decided to play the ball on the angle out to Madsbeck Sorensen's to his feet when it just wasn't on, and it was such a bad ball that the player. Um, intercepting it could he could use his left foot so instead of actually controlling it with his right which would have been more natural to let it run across his body the ball was moving so slowly for him that he was actually able to put his the foot that was um intercepting the space between the ball and where the ball was coming from he could actually use the wrong foot to stop the ball control it and then turn and then play it back to brown to tap in so that showed how bad a pass it was it showed it was never on because that interception was made so easily and then I mean, it was a simple tap-in to put us 1-0 down after the first minute. And it's, I think it's a bad error. Maybe what you were talking about, concentration and just decision-making, maybe that wasn't right at that phase. And maybe he, he should have been thinking, it's the first minute here. Um, maybe I should have just got rid of this, let everyone settle. Madsbeck Sorensen's playing slightly out of position. Should I have been passing that ball to him? Um, and we went another goal down. So it was a difficult start. Um, Stoke have been really, really good against us previously. They've... Um, They've shut us out in a few games until late on and um, made it feel like we're we have no ideas against them. We can't we can't play against them. But this game wasn't that. Um, they had to make a number of substitutions because of the way they were approaching the game with this. With, and a lot of teams are doing this now with this tactical fouling and then getting people onto yellow cards. But if you can make five subs now, we're starting to see that it, if you if you're subbing the players off on the yellows, you can bring other players in and play and adopt the same tactic, and you can try and get through the ninety minutes. So it's it's quite a clever tactic. Um, and then when they made their changes, they obviously got weaker, and we improved heavily in the second half. Frank had a, whatever he did at half time, and there was a few much more improved performances. Um, especially from Mbemo. And uh, we ended up coming back out 2-1 winners. Well, that brings us to the end of February. And I guess the interesting question from here is, what does the immediate future look like? How are you feeling about March in light of the fact that there's been a lot of uh, issues that have been highlighted in this podcast over the month of February? How are you feeling about March? It's going to be another tough month. I think Norwich at uh, Carrow Road is going to be a difficult start. Um I think um, if Norwich probably pick up the points in that game, it's looking unlikely that uh, that first spot is probably not going to be Brentford. I think all the odds and all the gambling odds will look and be heavily swayed towards Norwich if they come out on top. I think if Brentford win, 
then um, then first position and being comfortable in actually matching Norwich becomes a bit more feasible. Um, System-wise, I think there's a couple of teams now that might suit Brentford a little bit more than some of these wing-back teams. We've got Norwich, uh, Rotherham, flitted in between a little bit, um, Blackburn and Derby, and then Forest afterwards as well. These are all teams that are back into the 4-2-3-1 phases. Um, um, four-two-three-one shapes, and they'll be a little bit more conservative and just try and not give away counter attacks. But I, there won't be such pressure on Brentford in the in the build-up phase with Raya, and um, I, th- I think they should be a little bit easier for us than that block of really adventurous teams that we came up against. Um, yeah, so it's it, it's I think it's too congested and it's too busy to think of it any other way than just getting through these games and just trying to pick up as many wins as you can. That brings us to the end of the the review of the month. Uh, another thing that did happen this last month was that you had a chat with Peter Prickett, who is an author. He's recently published a book called Principles of Play, and mm. you had an episode in a podcast out uh, this month with chatting with Peter about his book, The Principles of Play. So I think it will be quite interesting for us to have a chat about that. So do you want to just intro this and, and talk to us about the principles of play and Peter Prickett and what you took away from your podcast with him? Yeah, so Peter is, uh, he works at the Brentford Community Trust in the development area um he's a he's just like a highly qualified coach i think he's a level three qualified coach and um has done lots of stuff in futsal um just a vast knowledge about football and the the mechanics behind it we were chatting about and um he's just completed his master's uh on football performance and yeah he just has a wealth of knowledge and his book probably has been coming for a while I think he's written a couple of others but this book is more of like a top-down look of football and how um, how we've got to this stage the original principles um, from Alan Wade and just developing on those and then as football has got more complex and we've probably understood more of it over the years these academic and sub-principles that that occur and happen just identifying those and clearly recognizing and displaying them for people like me sort of learning more about the game and trying to understand it tactically and, and what's actually going on and um yeah it was just an awesome chat I think he he's one of those guys you could chat to about football for a long long time and uh he'd give his take on something and then he'd, he'd agree on something you'd suggest and then he'd make you think about it in a slightly different way and uh yeah it, it was just a really really good chat so the basic argument of his book or the basic approach of his book is that what he's trying to do is rather than talk about specific systems so looking at I guess the way that certain coaches play he was more interested in the idea of universal principles so I guess that's a one-size-fits-all approach to football so that if you're playing football can you boil it down to these principles that regardless of which system that you're using you're going to be touching on these these sorts of ideas Um, I actually find that approach to be problematic in certain ways um i wanted to talk to you about it actually because i suppose there's you can look for universal principles in football all you want and i I suspect that when you are coaching youth football you want to have as uh, wide-ranging an approach to football as possible right you want to keep the, the maybe the tactical side of things to a minimum and get the kids playing in a way that is as general as possible so that they could feasibly play in any system but i suppose for me the issue with football coaching and management is that eventually as a coach you are going to have a system that you use and I suppose there isn't quite so much importance for these universal principles. Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com insofar as Marcelo Bielsa probably doesn't worry too much about certain principles that aren't applicable to his system mm. in the same way that Jose Mourinho probably isn't very interested in certain principles that aren't uh, functional in his systems. And so I guess my question to you is, is like, what is the importance of having that universal focus in an approach to football? Do you think there is one? And, and what do you think that would be? What benefit do we get from being like, I have a sort of one-size-fits-all approach here? Um, is that is that only useful for youth coaches, or should every football manager have that generalist approach? Yeah, it's a it's a difficult one to narrow down. I, I think what he was trying to do is, um, I think if we look at certain maybe popular managers and how they approach the game, um, are they are they a defensive minded manager or are they attacking minded manager, and then how are they defending within that and are we are we sort of pigeonholing them into into a type of manager because of their philosophy or their or what they think about the game and i think he's trying to break it down in a way that explains that maybe Mourinho is the example i chatted to him a little bit about and um maybe just boiling it down to to what are these coaches actually doing and what's their what how are they principled in terms of are they are they committing more to attack are they committing more to defense do they think about basically he, I think a lot of what you're saying about the um, the youth side of things and Peter comes at this from a developmental angle where he is working with youth players a lot and mm. he is thinking about mm. how can we how can we make these players as good as they can be and keeping this fun and then have them continuously learning and then developing through football and I, I think a lot of his angles is on about being skillful being attacking and doing things that are off the cuff and 
and having structure but then being able to do something um exciting or something interesting within that structure and having a base to build it from so i don't know where i i don't know where i fully stand on being totally principled from a coaching perspective i think all coaches will have their own set of principles but within that what what are they doing and how and what have they been shaped by and um do they touch upon all of the principles and are are there sub principles subtly affecting how they approach games and that's where the youth side of it's quite interesting because I think something that I noted is maybe some of these coaches who have not come through youth football might approach this stuff a little bit differently they might be they may have come in quite at the latter stages of the game maybe someone like Mourinho I don't know how much work he's done in the youth phases of games does he have the empathy with developing young players coming up through and is he just all about the winning side of the game and does that get lost on do some of the sub principles get lost because he's just obsessed with winning there's there's so many interesting facets to it um but yeah what are what are some more of your thoughts i guess the other thing that i would think about this kind of thing is that when you're talking about principles of play my immediate question is well who are those principles useful for are they useful for coaches are they useful for players and i suppose the the big debate would be system heavy approaches versus creative approaches so i mean jose Mourinho is a good example of that right where he his his teams are quite systematically tight in defensive phases but when when going forward there's a level of sort of spontaneity to the way that he will get spurs to attack because he has players like Hyungman son mm. and um and dobele and carry kane you can afford to do that and i was actually watching um there seems to be a real fad for um, for animations of team structure at the moment or mm. attacking moves um, and I noticed someone had done one for a um, for a, a Spurs goal recently and what really struck me about that was that in, in, when they were going forward there was basically three players they had ahead of ahead of their uh, defensive unit and they they I think they, I'm not sure if they scored a goal but they nearly scored a goal and I guess when you have players of that level of, of, of elite talent you can you can do that kind of thing you can have that kind of spontaneity but on the other hand you have a coach like Marcelo Bielsa who to a certain extent I think especially in in attacking phases uh, up until they get his team get into the box he's very structured in terms of um, how you might create chances mm. um, and so my interest always comes in the level of like how much do you think that players need to know these principles and how much is it just a coach a coach side thing like as a coach you should know the the general approach uh that the other managers or coaches will take it's a general rule so that you have a bit more of a diversity of opinion or are you of the opinion that actually players should be well versed in tactical developments and tactical ideas like this in order to be more creative on the pitch or in order to sort of problem solve on the on the fit on the field as they're going along and I suppose again that comes back to what I was saying before about about the fact that football is a problem solving exercise but the question is where is the where is the locus of that problem solving should it be off the field in the coaches and coaching staffs discussions or should it be on the field in the heads of the players who are, who are playing and I, I think there's a certain assumption made about uh, about universal principles that suggests that you know if you could just coach all of your players to, to have these imp- 
principles in, embedded in them in some way. Mm. Maybe they maybe they don't realise they're there, um, but there will be better players, as it were. Um, that diversity of of ability on the on the field and ability to see the field differently might might benefit. But I don't know what your thoughts are on that. There's a lot of there's a lot in that. Yeah. I've just said. So. Yeah, there is a lot. There is a lot. I think. Uh, I, I guess from chatting to him as well, it was um, it was interesting to hear how he spoke about just touching on one of the things you said about players when they are on the field what so they may they may do things and they may um act in a way that he as a coach might find surprising and not actually understand what's happening or or not be able to see until he communicates with his team and finds out what they're doing positionally so you have your principles and you have your structure but within that you need to create enough flexibility so that you aren't becoming predictable and then if the team if the players are doing something that you you're not aware of or you're not sure you don't get why they've moved into that role then there needs to be some kind of communication so it's not just seamless I think he's talks very much about I think a lot of it is about development of players and these aren't finished article players I think this is it's what it comes down to you're not you're not dealing with a team of maybe 32 year olds or 30 year olds here this is actually more development and players who are a little bit more malleable into into enacting out some of your principles but one of the ones he did speak about which was really good and I asked him about this was the economy principle and this is um, basically where if you're working with younger developing players and um, their decision making is a little bit more off the cuff and they're not quite as honed this that kind of thinking and that kind of acting is to do with it's young it's learning um, it's fun it's skillful it's it's trickery and you probably lose that as you develop and go further and further through the game. So where I found it interesting was Thomas Frank working throughout the Danish youth levels, working with these kind of players and then coming into Brentford where we have got players in the final third who are very tricky, who are very intricate and sometimes they have to do things off the cuff because they need to beat a player. Not all teams have that. And then that do you fall into that dichotomy of have you got older players or younger players or which sort of players are you coaching? But then these older players as well, are they are they more are they more established and they've been through their developmental phase and are they just thinking of outcomes? So the economy for them is just wins. It's um, it's making sure that everything counts. When you do create one touch, when you do create um, sort of one chance, it needs to go in. And then he spoke a bit about um, basically as defenders get better and better and you come up against better teams, you can't really be having these... These um, you can't really having two chaotic players in the front line because you need to be more... You need to be more efficient with what you're doing. So it's developing players into your principles but making sure that they're not so wayward that you move away from the aim of actually winning these games um it's yeah it was um there's there's a lot in there there's a lot in the book um to take away but yeah i've just some fascinating concepts but i I think it's it's very much to looking at players in terms of there's still more to learn here and uh I, i don't i don't know how much from a player perspective there is to to sort of redevelop or for instance if you had um maybe Cristiano Ronaldo I'm not sure you're going to teach him to play defensive midfield at this late stage or you're going to teach him to drop Mm -hmm. in and become um a reserve player like um just to provide depth for the midfield progression and then move around to the other side of the pitch it's it's I, I find it very much aimed at malleable and sort of developing developing players if that makes sense hmm. yeah it's funny because it's a lot of this reminds a lot of this discussion reminds me of sort of the the 
philosophy 101 stuff that you do at university when you're studying philosophy mm. which basically goes along this line that you know you'll start off talking about the the, the sort of classical philosophers who uh, if you take a philosopher like plato for example he has this idea that there are you know universal principles that underpin all of human reality all of all of material mm. reality and the job of the philosopher is to try and get back to those universal principles and then in the medieval late medieval period you get a, a group coming along who are called the nominalists and what they they do is they say there's no point looking for universal principles because uh, at the end of the day we're just trying to justify the things that we that we already think um those things are just those things are just words and, and what they think is that you should just focus on specifics and I, I kind of see this coming through here maybe maybe a little bit of my uh, response to this is that I'm kind of the of the opinion that I don't know whether or not football even has universal principles and I think for my gut feeling is that as a as a coach you don't need to worry about the universal principles you just have to worry about the specifics that you're that you're trying to inculcate in your in your team I accept I may be wrong on that but it, it does feel to me like a little bit too much like trying to find underlying principles that may not even be there and and then I guess I would raise the question well what's what's the point what do we get from from raising those questions in the first place so um we should we should move on i'm sure but uh, do you want to just conclude on 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 that sort of issue yeah i do I, I think i slightly disagree in the sense of them not being there because um i think you can construct a lot of the principles he was talking about and then the, maybe the academic work behind it for them to actually it does feel there are a lot of light bulb moments that you have and they they do exist and i think yeah i, I think that's where i'd stand saying that I, I think a lot of these do i think some of them are not abstract in a sense, but more if you're if you're just putting these players into a position where they are supposed to think off the cuff and make decisions themselves, then then what are you actually doing? I guess you're. I just feel like you're just you're just creating a structure for these players to do interesting things at the right time to make you create goals to win these games. I think that's yeah. where that's where we can probably get over overloaded with actually what's going on. I think that's where you're coming a little yeah. bit. Like what? What are you? How are you actually impacting this? What are you doing? And I, and I think there is impact there. Yeah, I, I guess the what the benefit. And I've started reading the book. I suppose the benefit is is that actually what Peter does quite well is he breaks down the game and says like, let's just think about this in its simplest form. Mm. Uh, let's get rid of all of those really specific systems that people will just have in their head. And I and I, I I can understand that that you if you are constantly working in the same system, you can start having a very very narrow view of what it is that you're trying to achieve. And sometimes just breaking everything down and saying let's go back to basics and big picture stuff uh, and sometimes you can you can go through that approach and actually think oh you know what i'm focusing too much on this small aspect of the game um i should be focusing on a big one now a lot of this comes down to the fact that i spend most of my time thinking about Leeds united <laughs> uh, putting out content about Leeds united in a very specific tactical system that is very logical as well so for me I don't spend a lot of my time thinking about the big picture stuff. I spend a lot of my time thinking about the small um, detail stuff with, with the Bielsa system. So I can see that I'm probably a little bit blinkered in that regard as well. <laughs> burned. Should we call it burned, John? Burned. Yeah, maybe. But an another thing that happened this month, which does touch on Brentford, is that um, Brighton have been unable to win games despite creating many, many chances and many, many better chances <laughs> than their opponents. And a, a lot of this has been... Um, angled towards an ex-Brentford player, Neil Mopé, um, who you will obviously have have spent a lot of time watching in the past. So I thought it might be it might be good for us to to just talk a little bit about the ongoing debate that has been going on this month in particular. Um, 
and I wondered if you could just sort of summarize the the debate that has been going on yeah I'll try it's um <laughs> I don't I don't know how much more I want to do. I might mute the words xg so I don't um, ever interact with it again but we can talk about chance quality or yeah something we'll call it something it sound different. a little bit less yeah. glitchy <laughs> so chance quality has come up for Brighton a lot because Brighton is seemingly dominating games in terms of like ball progression the positions where they're getting the ball um uh, the number of like passes they're making in dangerous areas, the number of shots they're having. And then at the other end, they're, they're not defending terribly either. So as an overall team, you're thinking that actually this team's quite good, but they're also really low down in the league. And they have a couple of players which are probably taking some of the flack for them not winning enough games. So I, I think, again, narratives just change the way people look at football and assess it. So we're just going back to the last weekend. Um, whenever people listen to this, but the last weekend game was, uh, they lost to West Brom, I believe. And I think in West Brom, they, they missed, against the West Brom, they missed two penalties and they had a number of good chances um, and they they ended up losing the game, which is, this is, I mean, as a narrative, this is just what football's about, isn't it? You dominate the opposition and then they go up the other end and score with one of their one of their two chances. You must see it for Leeds. You've seen it for Leeds over the years heavily since Bielsa's been there and Allardyce is smugly after these interviews looking like he's some kind of genius when he's taking a lot of flack for 90 minutes and then his teams are coming out 1-0 winners there's not really much skill to that I don't think I think he's just being dominated but the reason we're homing in on Brighton a little bit is because Morpai is pretty much central to some of the apparent issues at Brighton so uh Potter has gone in at Brighton now this is his uh, second season there um, I think he's obviously it's quite clear to anyone that he's improved this team that they they are a strong team and I think XG models have them maybe sort of like top five a lot of them now they're, they're like a strong team but how are they why can't they match that up with the goals they're scoring like they're way underperforming on goals and the natural thing to do is look at who is underperforming and so the next thing to do is like scrutinize their players and then the next thing after that is to look at what, how are they missing these chances and and you just sort of you keep moving a step back but all of the voices on it are coming from their own angles of what they see wrong and how they'd fix it but I, I don't know if we have to look at it as like wrong and right I think for Potter as a coach I think there's many more things he's doing right than wrong um, he's developed a system that gets Brighton through the thirds, it gets the ball into the final third and they create chances from it. I mean, that's pretty much, <clears throat> if you're thinking about a game for 90 minutes, if you're doing that for maybe three quarters of the game and defending less because you're so good on the ball, then this all has to be good. The problem I'm finding and um, where I'm seeing the narratives come in and the size people are taking on the argument is um, maybe talking about Morpai as this maybe terrible player or not quite good enough for some of the chances you're receiving and then... I think this comes bit back into maybe some philosophies and some principles of of Potter. Potter's principles are he wants this team to be good through the thirds. He wants them to be possession dominant and and outpass the opposition. And then he wants them to home in and get really narrow and um, create chances because that's the dangerous area of the box. There's not many there's not many long shots. There's not many sort of deep crosses coming in for players to head. It's just all very intricate and narrow. And 
going back to why this is quite interesting from a Brentford perspective is because Brighton to me look very similar to Brentford from a couple of years ago and Morpai is a big part of that so he's not he's a sort of player that's going to drop deep centrally pick up the ball um, swivel really quickly and then make a couple of short passes with wingers that have come in field and then move his way into the box and try and get a couple of shots away um, that, that, those are his strengths his strengths are off the ball play pressures um, disrupting the opposition um, just being a nuisance and then reacting to errors from the opposition as well so um, maybe not goalkeeper fumbles or or miss hits from defenders he's there to clean this stuff up where I think he's struggling a little bit is he's just moved up a level of quality so the errors from opponents are fewer and far between compared to the championship maybe where he did get a lot more goals um, you're just dealing with better players and I think you're coming up against better goalkeepers and I think himself as well. He isn't quite the elite forward that some people would wish he was. I mean, he does a lot of things well, but as a centre forward, and we're seeing this with Watkins and um, and Tony, there are better forwards than Morpai. But if you want a centre forward to help you with build-up and help you create chances and drop in, similar to how Firmino plays for um, Liverpool, this is what you're asking for. So it, it comes back to what does Potter want from his centre forward? And then... I, I know you've got some views that are, I've gone on a little bit more about Morpai, but I, I think um, I think we're far we're analysing maybe him missing these chances in such greater scrutiny, and we have to look at him as his physicality as well. And I'll probably come onto that after after you um, give your give your opinions. Yeah, I think contextually, I'd say I'm old enough to remember when Liverpool were breaking XG models and and <laughs> everyone was like you know they, they, they clearly don't work and that was that was as long ago as last season and this season so Liverpool have regressed a little bit you know and I'm sure that I will live long enough to see Brighton sort of regress to towards their mean as mm. well because they are massively underperforming and I think that has to be the sort of context that that we that this argument uh, takes place within now on the other hand that that shouldn't mean that as analysts of football, we should just sit back and say, well, the underlying numbers say that they're going to be fine. So in the long run, they're going to be fine. Part of the issue with football is that you just don't have time for runs of form to work themselves out in terms of underlying numbers, right? So um, if you underperform for 20 games, then that could be enough for you to go down. And I think that's the reason why people are talking about Brighton um, because they are in danger of going down. Uh, you don't care so much about it when it's Liverpool and they're going to win the Premier League. But when it's a Brighton team who seem to be going the other way, then then suddenly everyone's saying, well, should Graham Potter be doing things in a different way? Now, that's the, that's the theory. The principle is is that a manager won't be interested in any of that anyway, right? They'll, they'll, they will like to know that they are creating chances of good qualities um, that's what the whole point of xg is but if they're not scoring then they're going to try and do anything in their power to try and turn things around and so i think you just have to have a, a quite um careful balance with a lot of this you have to look at the underlying numbers and say the underlying numbers suggest that we're creating good and um uh, better chances than our opponents in general then you have to go back and look at the tape and and think well, what does it, what does the eye test tell us? Is there is there anything that maybe isn't showing up in those models? And then you have to have this the, the you have to sort of break down the philosophy of your play and say, are we too reliant on certain chances that that reduce our chances of of scoring? Um, I think that that's all you can do really as a manager. You take that you, you take the best bits of every system. You don't just simply rely on expected goals. You don't just simply rely on what your coaches are telling you. You have to 
use everything that you can to get some kind of uh, marginal gain here and there and so for me a lot of this comes a lot of these re- responses seem to be entrenched in an either or scenario where you have to be either pro xg <laughs> yeah. or you have to be pro coaching right and i think the probably the answer is going to lie somewhere in the middle yeah absolutely that that last point i think's the the big one so i remember speaking to one of brentford's analysts um and he was talking about and when I did this interview with him a while ago now, we were talking about the next phase for like analysts and coaches. And it's basically this, this hybrid between the two, like analysts who are heavily qualified and coaching as well. So they just understand the game in a deep way. They understand it from a statistical mm. angle and they understand it from a performance angle, but they also understand it from a coaching perspective as well. And that's, that's more like uh, you're getting closer to more a holistic view of your opinions. You're not coming at this from a purely coaching viewers in what can I change how can I develop this player is this player is this player good is this player bad or what's this player's ceiling it's not so much I think that is pigeonholing an opinion because you're just thinking it's a development issue or this player this player must improve tomorrow and we need to just keep working on this and working on this so there's that angle but I think um seeing Brighton just um just going back into that I I know you've said that you've seen all of more shots and I think this is quite interesting um Hmm. Uh, as a labour of love of football you've watched all of these <laughs> shots and I haven't seen all of Morpai shots I've probably seen about half of them um, but I've seen all of Morpai shots for Brentford over the years and without seeing all of Brighton's I can probably tell you what a lot of them look like just from also hearing what people said but the <laughs> the what will happen is because of their desire to keep the ball slow and keep possessions and then Morpai dropping deep what what is going to happen and it happened to Brentford a lot is you're going to have defenders who are able to get back into position and the midfielders who are also able to get back into position so you just have this you just have this block of eight people sort of narrow back and you've got to get through that so Morpai is really good at getting through that but the exhaustion and the energy to get through that you're left with you have to shoot after that as well so you're not only helping get the ball through those players you're actually trying to get on the end of it again in a really short space of time settle yourself and then get a shot away so there's there's this whole element of and this is why I think Brentford have improved so much in the last two years because we've moved away from a forward like Morpai. I think we he served us really well for a period and when we were really possession heavy and we had the high non-shot expected goals numbers and we we had these slower possessions and we tried to grind teams down. I think we found both from statistical analysis and video just marrying up the two that this isn't the way to play because it's just enabling teams to settle back. So if that's your, if that's how you want to play, then that's fine. You can play like that. And I think they will have success again. And they'll probably be a mid-table side like they probably really are. But at the moment, there's a, probably a little bit of a snobbery. And I think this went on with Leeds, just dipping into a bit of your channel and then hearing some of the, the MSN mainstream media guff. That how do you want how how should Leeds be playing these games? Who who do Leeds think they are trying to play this possession heavy t- system that mm. controls and tries to get through teams? When one of Harry's main points, Harry coach Harry, is why don't Brighton get in in the mix some more and just forget this and just they need to go back to basics? And then some of the traits are like maybe Hughton would be doing a better job as well because he'd probably resort Brighton back to this more primitive style and primitive is actually really unfair but maybe a more direct style that wasn't so possession heavy and then is that's that these these are philosophical arguments about how you want to play the Mm. game and what you see as fit and i'm not sure that people approaching these arguments fairly and i think you and i can probably have quite a rounded view on this because we probably approach it from a more 
a more even angle but a lot of the debate on it is thinking that who do Brighton think they are trying to do this and is this right for a team at the bottom of the league to be persisting with this style and then but why are they going to change they don't have a six foot four striker they don't have really tall forwards they're all their forwards are about five foot five five foot six so they're going to play you have Dan Byrne they could just (laughs) up front (laughs) to be honest I think that's what I'd have done by now but maybe Potter's a better (laughs) man than me because he's sticking to his principles and he is going to try and play through this so do you you get what Mm. I mean coming at it from the Leeds angle as well in this like who do Brighton think they are yeah I think there's a couple of things I'll say. First, I'll start off with the, the theoretical stuff that you're talking about mm. now. And what people forget is that football is a zero-sum game. Um, the reason why Leeds had problems in the championship last season was because so many teams knew that the best chance they had against them was sitting mm. deep and, and you know preventing them from scoring and then trying to nick one on the break. Um, I don't think that's necessarily happening so much with Brighton. But like you said, they, they maybe are a little bit more ponderous in build-up and so that gives mm. teams a chance to get back into defensive situations. And one other thing I noticed from watching all 54 of Neil Mope shots this season, which I must admit I did for I did for Analytics FC for a piece that we were writing there, mm. um, is that Neil Mope has, t- I think, two problems. One is that he likes to shoot with players in front of him. Now, that may be a systemic problem, as we've <laughs> talked about, um, but he really does seem to like to orientate himself with respect to opponents. The other thing that I noticed is that he's almost too composed when he shoots. And by that I mean, it seems as though when the ball is on his right foot, he 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 almost has a level of casualness, as almost as though you know if he's calm about it, he'll easily be able to sort of side foot the ball into the the right hand side with his right foot. And I, I actually noticed that he seems to me a little bit better shooting with his left foot because I feel as though because he doesn't feel as composed on it, he he maybe is a little bit more efficient, takes a shot quicker. Um, I don't know whether or not coaches would agree with that that's just what stood out to me um so there was a lot of shots from outside the box a lot of shots with players in front of him and then there was chances where he just takes a little bit too long on the ball when he has good opportunities and he allows uh, defenders to maybe jump in and get blocks just a lot of his shots seem to get blocked um and again i mean you, you can talk about the systemic things but i think as a as an individual player that would be what i would be advising him to do is that he needs to just be a little bit more ruthless at this level because defenders are going to be good enough to get back and make those blocks so any sliver of chance that you have to to hit the target he's just got to take uh, really quickly but yeah coming back to your point you know leads leads are doing better now because teams aren't sitting back against them um if you start playing in a different way against um, in, in the Premier League, Brighton may, yeah, may, maybe they would win some games, but they're not going to create as many chances as they were because it is a zero-sum game. If you're not possessing the ball as much as you were, your chances are going to be much reduced and yeah, okay, maybe you'll snatch them. But do you really want someone like Neil Mope taking fewer chances than the 27 chances they get in a game? If you're If you're relying on strikers like that, you need to have the complete opposite striker than Neil Mope you need to have someone who's going to take one shot and score it um you know the the sort of Tottenham approach to to goal scoring and I think that's the the problem the problem is is that Brighton have made their bed and they're going to have to lie in it you know these are the players that they've picked these are the players that they've gone for and they're doing everything right to the point that they can't score and I think at the end of the day the the whole point of expected goals figures is to say that if you're creating these chances of, of these quality in games enough then you'll expect in the long run to to win more than you lose um and i think that the solution for brian's problems is to bring in a better finisher and that's a really nice problem to be 
in because you don't have to change anything. If you're just going to suddenly rip rip up the copybook midway through the season, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to play this other way anyway. So I think that, you know, Brighton are, Brighton are a smart club. We talked about this before we came on air. They know what they're doing uh, and they're just going to go with the numbers um, and and the long run and they'll say that in the long run they're fine one final thing is I think the Brighton are a, a team a smart team insofar as I think they probably consider themselves I've talked about this with respect to um, SA Freiburg in Germany who consider themselves a top 25 team in Germany. Now, the top 25 teams in Germany aren't always going to be in the Bundesliga, so sometimes they're going to drop down. And I think Brighton probably consider themselves to be a top 25 team in the UK. And that means that they are going to have contingency plans for if they do go down. Um, I don't think they're going to rip up the copybook under the threat of potential mm. um, relegation because I think they see themselves as good enough to be able to do a season in the championship and then come back up again so I think all of that has to be taken into account as well yeah I agree I think that's the kind of mentality that just these these big gamblers who've got these clubs will think about they're, mm. they're not just looking at leagues as in like flat like chopped off structures as in 20 teams all oh, right you're up there you're on the top 20 team there's teams harboring in the Premier League that are probably well yeah West Brom for instance then they're, they're not a top 25 team so they might struggle if they do go down but but just um just I guess maybe rounding up on a little bit of more pie a little bit just on um just I, I think another interesting thing about him and I, I find this and I, I remember this watching him under Brentford and thinking um he's quite a short stocky guy and I think his limb like this is when you start to really scrutinize the physicality of these players and you're thinking well why is if you've just got more pie standing next to Ivan Tony why is Tony so much better than more pie just mm. however much you want to talk about it he he just is because firstly he's he's bigger He's um he's a different sort of physicality. He's he's a little bit more longer limbed, so he can control balls in a different way. And something we see with Watkins a little bit is this is this this ability to just get shots off off balance and maybe falling away and just getting under it and just walloping the ball. It sounds like I've really simplified that, but Morpai himself is when the casual stuff you're talking about. He needs to be really settled to get these shots away, and that's where he does take three or four touches. The, the game seems to stand still but in the Premier League I think teams are moving into position and then blocking these and maybe some of it is shot selection but with Tony if you watch him carefully if the ball's placed back to him in the box and it's behind him he's adjust- that body is getting adjusted so that he can get a clean enough connection to get this ball going back towards goal first time and those kinds of movements and that kind of finishing is probably what's going to see Tony turn into a player that might get 25 goals in the Premier League eventually where Morpai may just be around that 10-11 mark and it, you still have to you, you are bound by the body you're given as well Morpai isn't he doesn't have this longer wiry explosive um, maybe not so not such an athletic physique that that enables him to do these things maybe off the cuff or, or on his weaker foot as you were talking about sort of maybe um maybe doing something a bit more instinctive or, or natural or just contorting his body in another way. So he has to think a little bit more because of how his how his feet are and just the, the legs he has. But I don't think to say that Brighton aren't working on these things in training for him to be hitting things first time. And he's, he's a striker. We see this is what they do. He'll be doing shooting drills and he'll be doing all sorts of things and also all different sorts of finishes. So I think um, just to maybe finish up on more by that, he won't be ignoring finishing first time or, or taking shots off early. There will be definitely training for that, but 
his body is maybe something that might hold him back in games. Well, I think that's a good place for us to end. Um, we have gone over a little bit over an hour, um, but it's been a great pleasure, as mm. always, David, to, to chat to you about the month of February in the world of Brentford. Um, and I'm looking forward to being back after, hopefully, a productive march for, for the bees. But I think a little bit of housekeeping before we finish. Um, do please share the Bees Tactical page on Twitter, which is at Bees Tactical. There's a substack at uh, beestactical.substack.com. You can subscribe to Patreon to give support to the podcast as well and get bonus material. That's at patreon.com forward slash Bees Tactical. And the most helpful thing that you can do for us is to give us reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Um, there's been a couple of flattering reviews from people who will be receiving their cash payments in due course uh, but we're always happy to take more reviews from you so do go um, and find the place where you listen to this podcast and, and drop us a review there if, if, if that's okay and here we are at the end of the podcast david so thank you very much for chatting and uh, i look forward to chatting again to you next month yeah good to chat to you john and um yeah we'll catch you next time on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.